At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. With me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible and you're in the room, there should be one below the seat in front of you, or maybe you're watching us at home. I hope you have one close by. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 this morning. I want to take a moment together and just read a section of the scripture we're going to be looking at and then pray over our time in God's word. So this is Ephesians 4. I'm just going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come this morning with hearts full of just gratitude for not only your incredible, enduring, steadfast love for us, but the way that you have made that love known by giving us your Son. Jesus, we are thankful that you would love us enough to be a willing sacrifice for our sins and that you would defeat death through your resurrection so we might have eternal hope in the love of God. Spirit of God, we are thankful for the way that you apply the love of God to our hearts and to our lives that we might know it, encounter it, engage it, and experience it. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your eternal love for your people. We stand amazed this morning by it. And now as we come to engage your word that you have given to us, inspired by your spirit, I ask that you would make this moment an act of love, that you once again would come and reveal more of who you are, that through your word we might see you more truly, experience more of your beauty and majesty, revel in your reality, that you would show yourself in your glory, that we might stand in awe and know a God who is love, but also that we would respond to and love to you, 
that you would empower us to have our, our, our hearts and our minds open and receptive, that you would empower us in faith to trust your word and to respond with lives that love you by living out that truth in the world. So God, move in this moment. May this be a moment of love for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. For nearly the last 40 years, the Barna Research Group has been studying trends at the intersection of the church and culture. Through surveys and polls and data analysis and all of that, Barna seeks to understand how the church kind of engages and interacts and overlaps with the culture. And from time to time, they release reports based on their kind of statistical analysis and studies and surveys and all of that. About five years ago, Barna started to notice a trend within our culture in the way that people engaged and were relating to church. And in some of their studies and surveys, they noticed that there was an increasing population of people that were marked by three distinct characteristics. The first of those characteristics is this group of people self-identified as Christians. They said, I'm with Jesus. I believe in him. The second thing that marked them was that they would have said that their faith in Jesus was highly important to them and to their lives. But the third characteristic that marked this group is that they had not attended or engaged a church in six months or more. Barna labeled this group of people in their statistical study as people who love Jesus but not the church. And what they noticed was that this was actually a growing trend within our culture and society, that that this was actually becoming more normal, and we were seeing more and more of this group of people around us. In fact, Roxanne Stone, who was the editor-in-chief of the Barna Group, noted this about this group of people. She said, if you live in a more churched area of the country, as we do, it's more than likely you have a significant number of these disaffected Christians in your neighborhoods. They still love Jesus, still believe in Scripture, and most of the tenets of their Christian faith, but they have lost faith in the church. While many people in this group may be suffering from church wounds, we also know from past research that Christians who do not attend church say it's primarily not out of wounding, but because they can find God elsewhere or that church is not personally relevant to them. Now, I think that's fascinating in her analysis of this group of people who love Jesus but not the church, she kind of highlights three main reasons that I think are really interesting and compelling. One, some people fall into this category out of emotional church hurt. They've had experiences with the church that have left them in pain or damaged in such a way that they say, man, Jesus, I'm cool with, but there's too much hurt here for me to actually engage the church. The second group of people, or the second kind of marker is more of a spiritual reasoning. Yeah, I'm for Jesus, but I don't need the church for my own spiritual life and my own spiritual reality. I have other options, other ways to engage that. And then the third one is a little bit more functional, I would say, right? It's kind of the people who say it's it's not relevant to me. 
The church, that just seems like an archaic thing from before. That doesn't really have much relevance to my life and where I'm at. Now, there, there might be a whole lot of other reasons, but I think these are three pretty decent reasons for why you might find someone who loves Jesus but not the church. And it's not my point here to demean those people or if you've struggled or, or struggled with that reality to say, oh, get right. But only, I think, to note that this is true. And I think it actually highlights something that's important for us, which is that there can be a disconnect from Jesus and his teaching and the reality of how that actually gives lived out in church. And that can cause confusion for some people and for others to kind of walk away completely. And so I think we should note and be curious about why could it be that there are people who love Jesus and not the church? Now, we've been in this series that we've been calling The Essentials, where we've been studying through kind of the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. And we've been using the, one of the earliest creeds or confessions of the church in what we believe to kind of walk and see how Scripture points us towards some core beliefs about who God is and how God works and who he is in the world. That creed's known as the Apostles' Creed. And through it, we've been looking at what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about the Holy Spirit. And today, we come to the part of the creed that simply says, I believe in the holy universal church. And as we engage that, I actually want, because we've been kind of practicing together to, to rehearse these essential truths, to actually say the creed together up until that point to invite you to kind of confess this with me. And as we do, I want you to kind of hear the flow of what we're going to look at today, how it kind of flows in, in the reality of the creed that we've been looking at. So, let's read this together. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints. So the way that the creed is structured, what we just read, overlines our belief in God, right? I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then the very next line that flows out of the reality of what we confess about God is, and I believe in the holy universal church. So if we put it in the categories of what we're saying, where some might come along and say, I believe in Jesus but not the church, the creed would come and say, I believe in Jesus and I believe in the church. It seems that there's a necessary connection between the two. And so I think the question then we should step back in light of all of that is ask and ask is why? Why does it flow out of a necessary belief in God to also confess a belief in the church? Or maybe another way to ask that is why is the church so important to our faith? Is it essential? 
If so, I'm glad some of you affirmed that. <laughs> but if it is, why is it essential? And that's what I want to explore today by looking at this passage from Ephesians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the early church in Ephesus. And some refer to it kind of as the constitution of the church because Paul unpacks for this church in ancient Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey and at the time was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Paul unpacks for them kind of what the church is and how it's called to be in the world. There's a ton in this letter that we can learn about the reality of the church. But I, I just want to look at a few verses to kind of help us think through why is the church essential. If you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, Jesus I'm cool with, but I'm, I'm still not sure about this whole church thing. I get it. Right? I don't want to dismiss your concerns. And I think probably if you asked all of us, there's some point where we go, is this church thing even worth it? Like, can't I just love Jesus and have my Sunday morning back? So I don't want to dismiss why you're there. But what my hope is today is to engage this passage and, and I think help you see and understand why we think the church is essential. So, in this passage, we're going to see three things that I think God does in his church that help us see why it's vitally important to our faith and why it's important to love Jesus and love the church. So we see the first one come in verses 1 through 6. And it's simply this, that in God's church is where he use, unites his body. Let's, un, let's unpack these verses together. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul begins this back half of the letter. Ephesians 4 starts the second half of the letter where he essentially begins to apply in many ways what he's been unpacking in the first three chapters. And so he begins with this simple phrase, therefore, which means he's building on what he's been saying Previously, anytime when you're reading through the Bible and you encounter the word therefore, a good biblical study question to ask is, what's the therefore, therefore? What is he drawing upon? And what you realize is Paul's actually drawing on the argument that he's been making all from the very beginning of Ephesians. So let me summarize that argument for you because it's going to come into play then in how he understands the church and what he's calling the church to. Paul begins the letter by essentially reminding the Ephesians of what God has done for them in Jesus, that he has blessed them with incredible blessings, that he's redeemed them, that he sealed them with the Spirit. He then reminds them of Jesus' incredible victory at the end of chapter 1, that Jesus is essentially the victorious one, that by his death and resurrection has defeated the powers of sin and evil, has been raised to be seated at the right hand of God, and is now ruling and reigning as Lord over creation to bring God's redemption about. In chapter 2, Paul begins to help them see that in Jesus, God is actually bringing salvation to all people. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves, but a gift of God. He then moves on to help them see that out of this implication of God's salvation of us personally, God is actually forming a new group of people, what Paul calls a new humanity in Jesus, made up of people from all tribes and all places, that there's no longer divisions that exist between Jew and Gentile, people and ethnic subgroups, but that God is making a new humanity. Why is God doing this? Well, Paul unfurls in Ephesians 3 that God is actually forming the church 
church into a dwelling place for him by his spirit. So what Paul unpacks in the whole first thing is the nature of what God is doing in the gospel. So now he's going to call them to walk or to live in light of that reality. But as he does, he wants to emphasize that the call to live is rooted out of the reality of who they are. That's why he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Anytime a biblical writer uses phrases where they repeat words, that's a point of emphasis. Right? They didn't have like, how do I hit bold in this text? Where's the all caps button? So the way they do that is they repeat words to put emphasis. So Paul's call to walk is rooted in what? In their calling. And what's their calling connected to? Well, Paul actually uses that phrase distinctly two times in the letter. He uses it in 118, and he uses it in 4.4. And in both times, he connects the calling to the idea of hope. Now, hope points to the end of things, of what is to come. And what Paul has been reminding them from the beginning is that God is working in a group of people by the gospel for what he's ultimately going to do in the end when he brings about the fullness of his redemption that is happening in Jesus. So Paul roots the call of how we be the church in his understanding of the nature of the church. And what is the nature of the church built out of? Well, he goes on to give these scriptures. So pursue this calling with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's going to call them to unity. But what's that unity formed out of? We see it in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's call and hope again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you catch the theme of one there? Right? So Paul is calling them to practice unity. But what is he rooting that call out of? The nature of God and the nature of God's salvation. Essentially what he's seeing is you're called to live this out because this is who you are. And what we see when we step back and look at Paul's kind of underlying assumption that he unpacks in these six verses, we begin to see his understanding of what the church is. For Paul, the church is a people called by God in the gospel So that through them, God will display the fullness of his redemption and victory that has happened in Jesus Christ. He's doing that now, in part, and will do that fully in the consummation to come. So the church, in Paul's understanding, is God's people called to him and called to one another, and they ultimately exist for his eternal purposes. So what he calls for in unity is rooted out of his understanding of who God is and who God's people are. Essentially, he says, you should be one because God is one and God's people are one. But in that, we see what Paul connects the nature of the church to is God's purpose and work of redemption. This is where we get the understanding of what the church is. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine with me that you're 
CEO or vice president or boss or whoever is over you at your work comes to you and says, hey, I want to let you know we're forming a new team for a special project that we're going to have you work on, and I would love for you to be part of that team. So there's a call that kind of invites you to join the community. Now, what's the first question that comes into your mind if that would happen? Well, what's this team all about? Like, why are you forming this team? What's its purpose? Because to understand the purpose of the team helps you to understand what the team is. And so your boss says, well, we have this special project. We want to explore yada, 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 right? You get the point. But the purpose helps under, exemplify or point out the identity. It also then helps you understand how you're supposed to relate to this team what this actually is meant to look like. So when we talk about the nature of the church, we have to understand its purpose. And what we see that Paul assumes is the purpose of the church is ultimately to be the people through whom God will work his eternal redemption in Jesus. Michael Bird, a very good theologian that I would highly recommend you read, in his book, The Evangelical Theology, says this. He says, the church is part of God's purposes, not a cue for the hereafter, but a mode of God's saving presence, a physical representative of Christ's body in the world, and a foretaste of the new creation. Then, as John Stott said, the church is at the center of the eternal and historical purpose of God. Therefore, catch this, a thick description of the church must include saying something about the church, not only as the people of God, but also as a means of God's grace and explain the present implication of the church's future destiny. Let me translate that for you. What he's essentially saying is, if you're going to understand the definition of the church, you cannot disconnect it from God's eternal purposes. That's why the church exists. And it helps you understand then what the church is. So I think if we were to define what Paul's pointing towards in these verses and really throughout the letter of the nature of the church, this is how I would put it. The church is God's people called by him in the gospel for his eternal purpose of redemption and restoration through Christ Jesus. So there's a few key things I want you to see in that, right? When the Bible talks about the church, it is not talking about buildings and programs. This space is not the church. What we do here is not the church. The church is you gathered in Jesus. It's the people who have put their faith in him. Put simply, the church is God's people. And that the God, the church is ultimately formed by the gospel and in the gospel for God's purposes of redemption. Meaning it doesn't exist for itself. It exists for the purposes of God in the world and in his work of restoration, ultimately that comes through Jesus who works through his church. So when you begin to see this, you begin to then move towards a thick definition of the church, a, a broader understanding. And this is what the creed is trying to get you at and what the scripture is trying to get you towards. That's why it uses these key descriptors really built out of the nature that, of the church that the Bible gives us. So when we confess the church is holy, 
and universal, the Nicene Creed would come and add the words one and apostolic, it's trying to get you to see the bigger vision of the church. When we say the church is one, it means that the church is one because there's one God who forms one people. There are not multiple peoples of God. There is one people of God under one Lord in one faith. To belong to Christ then is to belong to his people. That's what we mean by one. There's diversity within this people. There's different gifts, different ethnicities, different subcultures, but there are not multiple peoples of God. There is one people of God, under one Lord, in one faith, one baptism, because God is one. The church is holy, meaning that the church is a people set apart by God for his purposes. That's what holy means, to be set apart. That's the nature of the church. To be called in Christ, to put your faith in him, means you're now part of a people who've been set apart for God's eternal purposes and work. We then are called to live and walk in holiness, which Paul's going to use throughout the letter, but that is only to express what we are in Jesus. The church is Catholic or universal, right? Don't think Roman Catholic. Think Catholic as in universal or global. That's what the word originally means. That's why we usually say one holy, universal, and apostolic church. And what we mean by this is that the church is a global people. Again, Bird is helpful here. The church is not restricted by geography, ethnicity, gender, class, or status. It is a universal assembly that is made up of people from every tribe, language, culture, and place. It is global. And the church is apostolic, meaning it's found upon the teachings of the apostles concerning the gospel of Jesus or what we have in our New Testament. Another way you could say this is the church is built on the foundation of God's word. That's what we mean by apostolic. That's why during the Reformation, when the church was trying to rediscover the reality of what a church was in light of the abuses of the Catholic church, what the reformers came to as the marks of the church where they said was a true church was a place where the word of God was purely preached, where the sacraments were purely practiced, and where church discipline was purely exercised. Now, why those three markers? Because it distinguished the church as being built on the foundation of the word of God. In fact, the bell confession says this, in short, a true church governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. So all of that is trying to get you to see, look at the church. It's one people under Jesus, set apart for God, global in its entity, and ultimately exists for his purposes. Therefore, the only, therefore, the local expression of the church who we are, is always connected to the universal reality of the church. That's how Paul understands. So Paul's like unpacking this. You're one people, part of one person, one God. But who's he writing to? A church in Ephesus, which is different from a church in Corinth, which is different from a church in Jerusalem, which is different from the church in Antioch. But all those expressions of the church locally are only connected to who the church is universally. And when we understand that, we understand a thick, important understanding of the church. So here's my question. Is that how you think of the church? 
Because I would say most people in our culture don't think of the church that way. As God's people set apart or called in the gospel for God's eternal purposes of redemption in Jesus. Again, Bird's helpful here. He points to, I think, three ways that we view the church often in our culture that I think are thin understandings, which might cause us to embrace an idea that says, sure, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. He notes that we live in a hyper-individualist culture, which can distort us to think of the church as, one way, as a gathering of Jesus' Facebook friends. <laughs> but that's how many people view the church. Yeah, those are just the people who like Jesus. And they get together because they all like Jesus, just like any other social entity in our society. If you like euchre, then you get together with those people. If you like golf, then you get together with that club. Right? So that's how we think of the church. So what happens is, if that's how we think of it, we're like, well, yeah, but I can still like golf and not join the golf club. So I can certainly still like Jesus, but not join the Jesus club. Because that's a thin understanding. The second thing he points out is that we often think of the church as a business that produces spiritual goods. We live in a highly consumeristic culture. And as consumers, what we engage the world as is, I can choose what I want to engage based on what I desire or like or what works best for me. So if I like one set of groceries, I shop at this grocery store. If I like another set of groceries, I shop at this grocery store. If I like cheap groceries, I shop at Aldi. It doesn't matter what it is, but in some way, right, like it's I pick and choose kind of how I want to engage. So the way we think of church then is we think of it this way. It's a business that produces spiritual goods. And because of that, I can just engage it as I kind of want to get what level of spirituality works for me. So maybe I'll pop over to this church and I'll listen to that pastor because I like his teaching. And I'll pop over to this church because I like their Bible study. And I'll, or maybe I won't gather at all. Now we live in a world where we don't even go to stores. We just buy everything online because it's so much easier to have Amazon just show it up in my house. And so we've started to bring that into our spirituality. Why wake up on Sunday and go sit with those people? Why be in their mess? I can just pull that teaching from that church I like who's a way better communicator than I am. I can just engage in a group online where they don't actually have to know my life. They only know what I show them of my life. So therefore, I can present myself how I want. And this is how we come to think of church. So then, it's natural to say, I love Jesus, but I don't really need all that mess. Finally, the last way we engage in our culture is we think of it, he says, as a champion of civil religion or sociopolitical project. We've essentially tied the community to our politics, and we think what the church is, is it's meant to be a political agent or arm in the world. And, and this is true on both sides of the aisle. We've tied it that way, and we think that that's what the church is. And we have a whole generation underneath us that's looking at us going like, I don't want your politics. I want Jesus, he seems cool, but if that means i got to be a part of this political, like, I'm not sure about that. And they avoid the church altogether. Listen, evangelical was a spiritual label long before it was a political one. Our worlds just distorted it that way. 
Originally, the term evangelical was developed to highlight churches across denominations that had fidelity to the gospel. They believed in personal salvation. They believed in the truth of the word of God. They believed in Jesus. That's what it meant to be evangelical. But somewhere along the way, we've distorted that to say evangelical means affinity with my political party. And wherever you land in your persuasion, you'll identify evangelical that way. When the whole time, it's meant to actually be a label to get you to rise above your political fidelity to say the church is about Jesus, it's not about your politics. That's where we find unity. But you see, when we thin out the church in its definition, when we stop connecting it to Jesus, when we stop seeing it as God's people, when we stop seeing it as being connected with his eternal purposes of redemption, then it's natural. Listen, I get it. Who doesn't? If the church is this, if the church is a gathering of Jesus, his Facebook friends that produce spiritual goods and ultimately highlight a political agenda, I'm out on that too. I'll go into Jesus. I love Jesus. I don't want that church. So the problem is we, we look and we're like, well, why don't people like church? And I'm like, well, maybe we've given them the wrong picture of what church is actually meant to be. And that's what Paul's trying to get us back to. And, and to help us then lean in even further of why it's important for us to engage the church, he draws on two images that I think are really important. Listen, there's a ton that you can unpack from the 16 verses in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. But I just want to highlight a couple things to help you see, to help you thicken your understanding of the church a little bit and to see what role you have to play, why it matters to have these connected. So follow with me here. Paul says, But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then in parentheses, I'm going to skip this, he kind of unpacks what that means. But he's highlighting here again Jesus' victory. He's quoting from Psalm 68. He's trying to highlight Jesus is the victorious king who now gives gifts, which would have been a common practice in his day. What are these gifts that he gives? Look at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So those are gifts that he now gives to his church. And I did a whole teaching on this a few years ago when we went through Ephesians. So if you want to unpack those gifts and unpack that reality, I'd encourage you to go back there. For today, I'm just trying to highlight some aspects of the church here. So he gives these gifts. Why? Verse 12. Here's the key. To equip the saints. That idea of equip is perfecting or completing. Saints just means holy ones. It's Paul's often word that he loves to use for the church. So, so why does Jesus give these gifts? To complete his people or to grow them, equip them. For what purpose? Now, here's what I love. For the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. So what does God do in giving gifts to people? What's its purpose? For ministry, right? Ministering in the world and to one another, and for building up the body. Now, here's a good question to ask yourself. What is a body? Have you ever thought about that for a second? Like, what, what is a body or your body? Here, here's a real simple understanding. Your body is the physical substance of who you are. Right? You, you are a person created by God. And as a person, God has created you with both soul, an immaterial part, and body, a material or physical part. Your body is the material part of who you are. They're, they're not disconnected from each other. They're connected. We're designed. 
Just like God originally designed heaven and earth to overlap, the pinnacle image bearer of his creation was where spirit and substance overlapped, which is who you are. But your body is your physical substance. It's how you are in the world. You, you do not relate to the world devoid of your body. Right? Think of it this way. If you love someone, can you engage that love towards them disconnected from your body? No. Your body is the way in which that love gets manifest to that person in relationship. You might feel immaterial a love or attraction or whatever towards that person and affinity, but your body is the way that's manifested through your actions, your words, your touch, your presence, right? All of that exists. So your body, are you following me here? Your body is the way who you are is represented and manifested in the world. So what does it mean then that the church is Jesus's body? Whoa. Let me draw the connection if you didn't get it. The church is Jesus's physical substance presently in the world. Which means Jesus does not minister to the world separate from his church. How does Jesus love? Through us. How does Jesus bring the good news of his death and resurrection, which provides salvation and reconciliation back to God? Through us. How does Jesus love the downtrodden, abused, unfortunate, people who are cast out from society, looked over, unjustly treated? Through us. Jesus does not do anything presently in the world devoid of connection with his body, just like you don't do anything in the world devoid of the connection of your body. The miracles he works comes through us. The proclamation that he works comes through us. That's how he works, which is why Paul says your gifts matter, because just like your body's made up of various parts, that help you engage the world, Jesus' body is made up of various parts, which then help him to engage the world and actually builds it up. It helps it be what it's supposed to be. Because no, notice the goal here in 13, right? So it's the building up the body until what? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We build up the body. Why? So we can be more full of Jesus. So we can look more like Jesus. How do people in Farmington Hills come to engage and encounter the reality of Jesus? Us. And not just us. Let's not be arrogant enough, right? We're connected to a universal. There's other churches, other entities. But I'm, I'm just applying this to us, right? We're not the only church. Praise God. But... When we ask that question, we step back then to ask, are we building each other up to be a community that looks like Jesus? Because if we're going to be that community, it's going to take all of us. It can't take some of us. It's got to take everybody. Because all of us have been given gifts. All of us have been given things that, are help, that help to build up who we are collectively. And that's what we're about, right? To help grow as a community 
to be a faithful representation of Jesus in the world. And that's essentially what Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to connect. That's why he goes on, so that we wouldn't be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So he's going to come back to this metaphor. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, catch this, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So when the parts work together, what happens to the body? It grows. Grows how? Numerically? Does it get taller? Wider? Bigger? No. He defines it so that it builds itself up in love. How it grows is it grows to be a community of love that faithfully represents Jesus in the world. And the reason you matter in that project is God has given you things that are to help us grow spiritually. You see, this is where I think we've gotten disconnected in some of our consumeristic business approach to the church. So people come in and they think, my only responsibility here is to be a cog in this wheel so we can get bigger, have better budgets, bigger buildings, more people. And so at some point they go like, well, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I guess that's fine. But at some point, that doesn't seem very fulfilling because it's a thin understanding of church. But if you understand, the point of the church is to be a faithful representative of Jesus, to be his body, the people of God through whom he works his eternal redemption. What you realize is I actually have gifts inside of me and I have things in my life that can help this community be more of that. Listen, let me talk to you just for a moment if you've experienced church hurt because I know that's a real reality for why a lot of people step into a place of saying, I love Jesus and not the church. Because, listen, we're, we're a little messy. I don't know if you know this. Right? If you find a perfect church, I've always loved this saying, if you find a perfect church, you should probably leave because you're just going to mess it up. Right? It, it, it doesn't exist. And unfortunately, we're sinful, so we hurt each other. So, so I, I want to have empathy for that. Listen, I, I get it. But, but here's what breaks my heart as a pastor. I've seen people who've walked through hard roads in the church, who've been hurt by unfaithful expressions, unfaithful practices, and communities, unfortunately, that look more like the world than they do like Jesus. And I've seen people who've walked away. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. I qualify this? There's some communities you probably should walk away from, but, but I'm just going to talk about us for, for a minute. Here's why that hurts. Because we actually need you. We need your pain. Because when you leave, we don't have the opportunity to, to see where we might be off and how we could be more and grow and mature to be more like Jesus. And one of the things we want to grow in as a church around here is, is being a place that listens, that hears your pain, but then also walks and helps you walk a journey of healing so that your gifts, what God has entrusted to you, can help us be who Jesus wants us to be. Now, that's a process, and that takes work, but my encouragement is if you've been hurt by the church, don't walk away. The church is 
meant to be the place where you can heal and we can heal so all of us can look like Jesus. It's easy to look at the church and say, ah, they don't look like Jesus, but I'm not going to do anything to help. We need your help. And we need all of us in the project. If we're going to be a faithful representative of Jesus in the world, if we're going to be a place, as what I think Paul's trying to point us to, that we're where God's people grow in God's image, then we need everybody bought in. Because you have things that matter. You have gifts that matter. You have purposes and calling that matter. I mean, I want, when people look at this little local body, here at Woodside Farmington Hills. When they look at us, they say, I love Jesus and I love that church because they kind of look like him. Maybe not perfectly. Maybe not exactly. We won't find that till we get to the kingdom of God. But at least when they see, they're like, there's something in that church that looks like Jesus. And then if they don't want to be a part of us, it's because they don't want Jesus. Not the way we've messed him up. But if if we're going to get there, brothers and sisters we can't do it without you because that's not something that can just be accomplished in our own individualistic world it takes all of us committed to walking that path of growing together and using what we have to build one another up when we have that I think it'll be a lot easier to say, I love Jesus and I love the church because that's where I find him. That's where I engage him. That's where I experience him. So what I want to invite you to do today as we close is I want you to just take a moment and I want you to just ask yourself, where might God be inviting me to lean in to his church. We're all in different places, but, but if we assume the church is what I believe it is from Scripture, and I obviously believe that or I wouldn't be arguing for it today, but if, but if that's what we see Scripture is, I think the natural question is, how do I lean into that? And what is God inviting me into? And for some of you, that, that might be trusting Jesus for the first time and saying, because the way you are a part of his people is by putting your faith in him. For some of us, maybe that's leaning into this community. Maybe you've been on the fringes of church and God is saying, listen, if you're going to live this out, you've you got to do that with a group of people. Here we are. We'd love to have you. Maybe God's inviting you to lean in to begin to acknowledge the pain that keeps you on the fringes. Maybe he's inviting you today just to acknowledge, yeah, I got really hurt really made church hard for me. And we'd love to listen to your story. We'd love to just walk right next to you and help you. Maybe it's just leaning in to serving and engaging and figuring out what piece, what part you have to play in the community that we are together. I don't know what it is for you. But what I want to just give you is a minute just go in the quietness of your heart before the Lord and ask that question.
him. Let the Spirit give you a clear prompt. I believe he will, a clear prompt of what it looks like for you to lean in to loving Jesus and loving the church. Just take a minute right now, and then I'll pray for us in a second. God, I come to you today. I just want to simply ask that you would enlarge our vision and our heart for your church. And that from that place, you would help us together as a people to lean in to the vision that you have connected with your eternal purposes so that we might be used for your glory. I pray even now as we just prepare to respond in song together that you would use this words of this song, just a joyful prayer in many ways to quicken our hearts and deepen our passion to be the sort of community that represents Jesus well, that is his body here in this place and this time. So spirit move, we ask. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.